Well, good evening. Um, I knew uh, I was teaching tonight, not because Pastor Ben told me I was teaching, but I looked at the menu and it said we were having barbecue. And uh, I don't know if you know this, but literally, and this isn't a joke, it's reality. The last probably 25 times I've taught, we've had barbecue on the night that I've taught. It's just a weird, weird coincidence, if you will, or maybe there's something more nefarious behind it. I don't know, but we're having barbecue. I'm teaching. That's the way I always know. So saw so barbecue on the menu. Thought better start preparing a message. Got to get this going. But you know, I introduced myself to you guys a couple weeks ago. How many of you guys are new for the first time? This is your first year in Thrive. Raise your hand. We got a few, several. Like I said, I briefly introduced myself um, a couple weeks ago, but I thought since I'm teaching tonight, maybe a more thorough introduction is in order. So again, my name is Scott Gilmore. Uh, my wife Heather is right back here. Honey, could you stand up and wave there? There you go. Uh, Heather and I have been married going on 24 years now. Ooh, she deserves a reward for that, trust me. But uh, 24 years of marriage. Um, I work as a firefighter up in Los Angeles County where I've been uh, 28 years, going on 28 years now. She's been a dispatcher for the Orange County Sheriff's Department. Many of you have talked to her on the phone, didn't realize it. Um, but she realized it was you. And uh, she's been there for a little over 20 years and uh, making, making us feel old, huh? And... Um, God's blessed us with three beautiful children. I got a picture up here of them. There they are. This was about a year ago, actually. But uh, my daughter there, she's our firstborn. She's a sophomore down in Nashville, Tennessee at Lipscomb University where she plays soccer. And uh, we're going to see her next week, so we're excited about that. My son, Seth, there, he's a senior over at Tesoro High School where he plays football and um, is involved in the True North ministry here at Compass. And then God, in his infinite wisdom... Uh, thought it would be great or funny or both or whatever to uh, give almost a 50-year-old man and woman a, uh, a toddler in their old age. And so like Abraham and Sarah, we have little Josiah, <clears throat> three years old. But Josiah makes a perfect segue into tonight's message because tonight Jesus is going to talk about infants and toddlers in our passage. So if you have your Bible, let's turn there. It's Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 15, verses 15 through 17. We've actually had uh, several people ask us if we're Josiah's grandparents, and that's not joking. We were at uh, Selma's not too long ago, and uh, waitress came up and goes, how are you guys doing tonight? I go, good. How are you? And she said, good. She goes, hey, buddy, how are you doing? She goes, you got a night out with grandma and grandpa tonight? And, <clears throat> and she goes, Do you, can you say grandma? Can you say grandpa? And, and she goes, does he say grandma and grandpa yet? I go, not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Working on it. I know he's a blessing. So anyway, let's read Luke chapter 18, beginning in verse 15. It says this. It says, now they were bringing even infants to him, to Jesus, that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, let the children come to me, and do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. I know we've prayed it once already. Uh, Ian prayed for us. Let's pray one more time. Let's pray again. God, thank you so much for tonight, for this passage, and uh, just three short little verses, but wow, it packs a punch, God, and I just pray that we would hear everything you want to say to us, God, about prayer and about having childlike faith, God. So help us to learn these things tonight as we study your word together. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, you know, it says they were bringing even infants to him, but I actually looked up the word that Jesus uses when he says, let the children come to me. It's a Greek word that means 
not only infants, it can mean children all the way up to age seven. So don't think they were just bringing up newborns to him. They were bringing up newborns. They're also bringing up toddlers, like Josiah's age, they're bringing up five-year-olds, six-year-olds, all the way up to age seven. So they're bringing little children up to Jesus. That's what's going on here. And this same passage in Luke 18 is also found in Mark 10 and Matthew 19, the parallel passages. Matter of fact, this past weekend, if you were here, Pastor Mike developed an entire point on his outline from Mark chapter 10, and specifically Mark 10, 16, where it says this. It says, you have to turn that, I'll just read it to you. It says, he took them in his arms and he blessed them, laying his hands on them. And then he went on to explain that the word blessed is the Greek word katalageo, which means not just a cursory or a, a superficial blessing like, hey, kid, get out of here. God bless you. Get out of here. That's not what he did. He says he blessed them fervently. God, please be good to this child. Be good to these children. But not only did he bless the children, um, Matthew 19, another parallel passage that goes along, goes along with Luke 18, says he did something else for the children. And Luke, why don't you go ahead and turn over there? I want you to lay your eyeballs on this passage. So turn to Matthew chapter 19, just a couple books back from where we are. Matthew 19, just we'll read verse 13. Matthew 19, 13. says this, same story as Matthew telling me. He says this, Then children were brought to him that he might lay his hands on them and what? And pray. Well, I must have read this passage a thousand times and never really even noticed that. That they're bringing their children to Jesus to pray. So to bless them, the catalogue like Pastor Mike talked about, but also to pray for these children. And I can't help but wonder what kind of things Jesus prayed for those children that day. But let's make it more personal. Most of us in the room have kids, and those that don't, We'll soon have kids. Most of us will. We know that. So if, if you would have been there that day, if I would have been there that day, or, or if Jesus, I brought this chair up, and I don't mean this irreverently at all, but if Jesus were sitting in this chair and you were physically bringing your children to Jesus for him to pray for them, what might he pray for your kids? Well, I, can, I, I got a lot of things that I, I, I can't guarantee that he'd pray for, and there's a lot of things that we, you and I, do pray for. Not that they're wrong in and of themselves, but I can't guarantee that Jesus would pray for, for perfect health for your son or daughter. Nothing wrong with that, but I can't guarantee Jesus would have prayed for that. Or if you brought him up here tonight, that he'd pray for that. And I can't guarantee that he'd pray that your kid would be the best player on their soccer team or their baseball team or their football team or their swim team or their best at their musical instrument or whatever they do. I can't guarantee that. And as they grow, I can't guarantee that he'd pray that they'd be admitted to the best university. They want to go Ivy League. I want to go to Stanford, MIT, Caltech, wherever you want them to go. I don't know that Jesus would have prayed for that. Also, as they grow, I can't guarantee they would have prayed that they would uh, grow to make a six-figure income. Somebody told me tonight, six-figure income is not good enough anymore. You need to pray for a seven-figure income. They were being facetious, obviously, but I um, can't guarantee they would have prayed for that. Or that they would grow up, have a great spouse, get the five-bedroom home, two-and-a-half baths at least, maybe three bathrooms, white picket fence, preferably a view. God, I just pray for this child that you'd give him the American dream. That's what I pray for, God. Give, the, give my child the American dream. Not anything, again, I want to emphasize nothing wrong with any of those things in and of themselves. But Jesus may or may not give you, an eye those, give you or I those things, and there's no guarantee that he will. So do we pray for our kids for their health? We pray for my kids' health all the time for our kids' health. There's nothing wrong with that. But that should be the side dish, if you will, the meat and potatoes of our prayers should look like this. If we could have been, for example, a fly on the wall back then when Jesus was praying for these kids, or again, if he was physically here tonight praying for our kids, I think his prayers would have looked more like this, the meat and potatoes of what 
our prayer life should look like as well. He may have looked up to heaven and said, Father, as I pray for these children, I realize a lot of them are infants. Got a lot of infants in my arms right now. And they're newborns. They just, although they've just been recently physically born, God, as they grow, I pray there would come a day when they experience the second birth. Something that I shared with Nicodemus on that dark, dark night when I said, Nicodemus, unless a man's born again, he can't see the kingdom of God. So God, I'm praying that this child would come to a, a day in their life where they would be born again. I'm quite certain that Jesus prayed that for these kids. Then after that, I can only imagine Jesus as he's sitting there and people are bringing their kids to him, saying, Father, once that child has placed their trust in Christ and they are born again, I pray for them the same thing that I prayed for the disciples in John 17, 17, which was this, that, Father, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. And God, I pray that they would see the importance of your word because they're going to be young men and young women soon as they grow. And I pray that like in Psalm 119, verse 9, how can a young man or a young woman cleanse their way? By taking heed according to your word, Father. And I pray they would do that. Or just a couple of verses later, God, that they would hide your word in their hearts that they might not sin against you. God, that's what I pray for these kids. Again, I'm certain he would have prayed that. Next. Father, now that they're saved and that they're being sanctified as they're growing, I pray that they'd become fishers of men. I pray that in their sphere of influence, they would have compassion on lost people the same way when I looked out over Jerusalem, I had compassion on lost people because they were like sheep without a shepherd. And I pray that these children would grow up to see people like that. They would see this world as your harvest field and that they would see that indeed the fields are white for harvest and they would be your ambassadors. That's what I'm praying, Father. Pray for these kids. Real quickly, I want to take a break from something that Jesus would pray for a minute just to read you a prayer from uh, Pastor Mike. But although it's Pastor Mike's prayer, I'm sure Jesus would have prayed the, the same thing. They perfectly align. Um, back a couple months ago during Revival 17, if you're new and don't know what Revival 17 is, that's our summer camp for our high schoolers and our junior hires. And you could watch it online as they were going down. And uh, Pastor Mike taught all five nights. And so at home, we would be at home at night. We'd pull it up online. You could watch it live on the live stream. And we were doing that. And he was teaching on Daniel and how he stood out from the crowd and he stood up for, for God. And, and we go, that's awesome. So we just texted him. We texted Pastor Mike and we put, great message. He texted back this. Jesus would have said the same thing, but I love what he says here. He texted back and he said this, praying for these students. I love them. I want them to walk with Christ in this dark world, to be willing to take up their cross and follow him. I want them to see the deceitfulness of sin the folly of self-ambition, and the ripoff of juvenile partying and inebriation. I shook my head. I said, that's spot on. That's spot on. I'm quite certain that Jesus would pray something along those same lines for these kids. And then finally, I think Jesus may have prayed the same thing that Pastor Mike prays every time we do child dedications here at Compass. How many people have, your, have had your children dedicated here at Compass or have been to a child dedication? Raise your hand if you've been to a child dedication. Besides the child that's being dedicated, who does Pastor Mike always pray for? Audience participation. He prays for the parents, right? And I don't have a chapter or verse that can prove that Jesus prayed for the parents that day, but I wouldn't be surprised at all if Jesus was praying not only for the children that were brought to him, but if he looked over at their parents and said, Father, not only I pray for the, for the children, God, I want to pray for their parents right now. It may look something like this. Father, I, I got this little boy in my arms. I pray not only for this little boy, I pray for his mom and dad. Pray that you'd give them godly, biblical wisdom in the raising of this child. 
Lord, I pray they'd be, they, mom and dad would be obedient to you, you and your word, and they'd be obedient to your command in Deuteronomy 6 to teach the things of God diligently to their children, that they would talk of them when they sit in their house, when they walk by the way, when they lie down, and when they rise. Father, that's what I pray for these parents, and that they would bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. And he goes on to, Paul talks about that in Ephesians chapter 6. And then finally, Father, that these parents would do nothing to hinder these children. He may have glanced at the disciples. Remember the, the disciples that were hindering the children from coming to Jesus? But I pray, Father, that these parents would do nothing like these disciples over here in hindering these children from coming to you. Amen. So let's put it this way. Number one on our outline, let's pray biblical prayers for your children. Again, you want to pray for they get a good education and grow up and have a nice home, good health, all that. That's fine. But again, let's make the meat and potatoes of our prayers that we pray these biblical prayers for our children, for their salvation, for their sanctification, that they'd be used for God's glory in this world. Real quick uh, sidebar while you're writing that. I know it's talking about the disciples in our passage hindering children from coming to Christ, and he rebuked them for it. But there's things that we as parents can do that hinder our kids from coming to Christ, and we want to avoid those things. I'll just bring up a couple of examples. One of them I think about, I know a lot of us have little kids, but some of us have teens. Um, something I see that people hinder their children from coming to Christ, and it's become epidemic in the church, and it's heartbreaking. You know, through the years, we see people bringing their whole family to church. You see them all, you say, hey, how you guys doing? You see them on the patio on Sunday morning or Saturday evening. But as they get older, all of a sudden, you see just mom and dad, or maybe the, the little siblings, but the older brother, older sister, 16 years old, and you go, hey, where's so-and-so? And they go, oh, you know, they don't really feel like coming to church anymore, and you know, I think it's between them and God, and I don't want to force them to come, and it's, it's heartbreaking, because a couple things I think about that. One, how do you know that something that they hear that day from the pulpit or in their True North ministry, in the high school ministry, how do you know that something's not going to resonate that day that might bring them to Christ through the teaching of his word? Think about, we just had the baptisms a couple weeks ago. How many of those young people up there, late teens, early 20s, got up and said, man, I was being brought to church my whole life? Until one day, it just hit home. I heard the word taught, and it hit me. And I thought, oh, my gosh, I need Jesus. I need Christ in my life. I need to be born again. And they get saved. And we're going to hinder them from that because, you know what? It's, they're teenagers. They don't, ah, it should be from the heart, and they don't want to come. And we don't treat real life like that. I'm quite certain your teenagers, there's days they don't want to go to school. Do you treat school like that? Hey, you don't want to, yeah, they don't want to go to school, and, you know, I don't want to force them. That should, they should have the right motives, and they don't, so I'm just going to let them stay home today. No, we don't let them stay home from school. We make them go to school because we see the benefits of it. How much more so coming to church and being taught the Word of God? Don't let your kids stay at home. And, and, and for those with toddlers, and we got both teens and toddlers, as you know, um, you know, I hear people all the time, oh, they don't do good in class. They cry or they whatever, you know, so we don't, we, we don't put them in. We don't bring them to Sunday school. We don't bring them to church. Having a toddler, a three-year-old, I know how much they learn from being in Sunday school, in children's ministry. Don't hinder your three-year-old, your four-year-old, your five-year-old from coming to church because they don't do well in class. God wants to speak to them. Please don't hinder them. And then the second thing, a way we can hinder our children from coming to Christ is by being a hypocrite in home. You know what I mean by that? You're, you're one person at church, and then you're an entirely different person in the home, and your kids see it, and that's a turn-off to kids. Um, they'll be at home, you're, you're acting one way, you come to church, you have what I like to call a parking lot conversion, right, as soon as you pull in. <laughs> Your kids grow resentful towards that. 
And I get it. Ultimately, they're accountable to God, but that can be something that makes them resentful toward the things of God by watching their parent be a hypocrite. So let's not hinder them that way. In Mark 10, 14, remember, when the disciples were hindering their children from coming to Jesus, it says that Jesus was indignant. I looked up the Greek word for indignant. It's anagateo. It means to be very displeased, to be upset, to be angry. He takes it real serious when we hinder our children from coming, hinder any children from coming to Christ. So let's not do that. Let's not hinder kids from coming to Christ. Amen? All right. Now we're going to shift gears. Shifting gears from what was literally going on that day, real people bringing real children to a real Jesus, and he's really talking to them. We want to shift gears from that to the point he was trying to make as he used the children as an illustration of a biblical and eternal truth. So turn back to Luke 18. We're going to read it again. It's only those three verses. Let's go back to Luke 18. We'll read it one more time. Again, beginning in verse 15. It says this, Now they were bringing even infants to him that he might touch them. And when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. But Jesus called them to him, saying, Let the children come to me. Do not hinder them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. There's the punchline. You don't receive the kingdom of God like a child, you're not going to get in. Wow. The whole point of the passage is what it takes to receive the kingdom, what it takes to be saved, using kids as an illustration. Pastor Mike put it this way on his outline from the weekend. Like a child, we need to, his point was helplessly embrace salvation. Realize we're helpless just like children are. And he said point, sub point number A was by having a humble faith. Speaking of a, a humble faith, remember our, our passage tonight comes on the heels of the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Remember that? Right before the passage we just read was the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And if you don't remember, I'll just jog your memory. Uh, the Pharisee came to God and he said this. He started his prayer by saying, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Don't ever start your prayer with God, I thank you that I'm not like other men. Never a good idea, right? And, he, and then he started giving his resume. He goes, well, first, I'm, I thank you that I'm not like these adulterers or these, these uh, all these different sinful men. I thank you I'm not like them. Matter of fact, I thank you I'm not even like this tax collector guy over here. God, thank you. Matter of fact, God, let me tell you about my resume. I fast twice a week. I give tithes at all that I get. I'm a good guy. You need me on your team, God. The tax collector, this was a religious, religious guy saying this. The tax collector said he wouldn't even lift his eyes to heaven a sign that he recognized his unworthiness before God. And he said, but he beat his breast, and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Jesus' response, if you remember the passage, was this. I tell you, this man, the tax collector, went down to his house justified, saved, made right before God, rather than the other. For whoever exalts himself like the Pharisee will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. But it wasn't the only time Jesus spoke of children as an illustration of humble faith. He did it also in Matthew chapter 18. You don't have to turn there. I put it up here on the screen. Let's read this together. If you got that, Chris, there it is. Said, at this time, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus saying, who's the greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And calling to him a child, he put him in the midst of them and said, truly, I say to you, unless you turn and become like children, you will never See the kingdom of God. Strong words. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. A humble faith. And so at this point, you might be saying, Scott, okay, I get it. Tax collector demonstrated a humble faith. God used two different illustrations to, of children to, to demonstrate a humble faith. 
but how do I, as a grown adult man, a grown adult woman here in South Orange County in 2017, how do I know if I have a humble faith, the kind of faith that will keep me from saying and never seeing the kingdom of, of heaven? I want to go to heaven. How do I know if I have that humble faith? Well, there's three ways to demonstrate what humble faith looks like, and I'm going to talk about all three. So you ready for this? Let's look at number one. Number one, Pastor Mike talked about it this weekend. He talked about a Greek word, pastuo, which means trust or faith. He went on to say that it's not so much the trust or the faith what's important, but what your trust or your faith is in that's important, the object of your trust or your faith. Not about just trusting, it's about who you're trusting in. Anybody ever heard of a guy named Charles Blondin? Charles Blondin. Anybody ever heard the story of that guy? Charles Blondin. Nobody? No one? Okay, I'm going to read it to you then. Charles Blondin, listen, that's amazing. He was a famous French tightrope walker. You don't see that too much anymore, but that was a thing back in the day, right? I'll read it to you. Blondin's greatest fame came on September 14, 1860, when he became the first person to cross a tightrope stretched 11,000 feet or over a quarter mile across the mighty Niagara Falls. People from both Canada and America came from miles away to see this great feat. He walked across 160 feet above the falls several times, each time with a different daring feat. Once in a sack, on stilts, on a bicycle, in the dark, and blindfolded. One time he even carried a stove and cooked an omelet in the middle of the rope. Crazy. A large crowd gathered, and the buzz of excitement ran along both sides of the riverbank. The crowd oohed and awed as Blondin carefully walked across one dangerous step after another, this time pushing a wheelbarrow, holding a sack of potatoes. Blondin suddenly stopped and addressed his audience, do you believe I could carry a person across in this wheelbarrow? Forget about the sack of potatoes. Who believes I could carry a person in this wheelbarrow? The crowd went nuts. They said, you're, yes, you're the greatest tightrope walker in the world. And in unison, they said, we believe. And he said, I need a volunteer to come get in the wheelbarrow. It's a true story. Cricket, cricket. You see, they believed Charles Blondin, but they didn't believe in Charles Blondin. That he could get him safely across Niagara Falls. And I think about the folly of that, because although Charles Blondin, yeah, he's human. He may have made a mistake of fallen. Think about it. If you're not willing to put your trust in Christ, is he going to let you down? Even if you're a non-believer tonight, even by his common grace, has he ever let you down? Has he ever really let you down? I think we know the answer to that is no, he never has. But uh, I, I kind of know what that's like because I think about when I was back in high school. I, if you had asked me if I believed in Jesus, I would have said absolutely. I, I had a mental ascent. I said, I believe that Jesus is, if you would have said, is he the son of God, takes away the sin of the world? Absolutely. Is there any other way to God but through Jesus? Nope. You believe he died on the cross for your sins? Yep, believe that. Matter of fact, I must have had people fooled pretty good because not too long ago, pulled out my yearbook, wiped the dust off it, and looked at some of the comments that people wrote. A couple people put stuff like, hey, Scott, stay close to Jesus. I thought, man, who am I kidding? I believed about Christ, but I didn't believe in Christ. And it wouldn't have taken too much effort on their part just to look at my life and realize that this guy doesn't know Christ. So, big difference between trusting and trusting in. The second way we see humble faith is to realize that we need a mediator. We can't get into heaven on our own merit. Now, I realize no one here knew who Charles Blondin was, but how many people know who Jay Leno is? You know Jay Leno? Who knows who Jay Leno is? You know Jay Leno? 
But yeah, Jay Leno was the uh, host of The Tonight Show for nearly 20 years. And for young people that don't know Jay Leno, Jimmy Fallon is doing his current job right now that Jay Leno used to do. And so that's who Jay Leno is. But he's retired now, at least from The Tonight Show. Obviously, Jimmy Fallon's doing it. Jay's retired from The Tonight Show. And so Jay now spends his time in his garage. And if you're thinking in a garage like your husband spends time in his garage, it's not the same. It's not a two-car garage, a three-car garage, a four-car garage. Matter of fact, it just so happens Jay Leno's garage is the size of two Home Depot warehouses, and he houses, um, it's right up there by the Burbank Airport. He owns 169 cars and 117 motorcycles. He has um, uh, several Ferraris, a row of them, multiple Lamborghinis. He has a McLaren, one McLaren that's worth $20 million. He has nine Duesenbergs, if you know what those are. There were only 400 and something of them made all time, and he owns nine of them. Do the math. They're priceless. And nine of them in a row. He has a motorcycle that's worth $3 million. And you can imagine this facility is under some serious lock and key. And if you're thinking, why are you telling us about Jay Leno's garage? What does that have to do with his message? Well, a little over a month ago, I was at work, like I said, working at the fire department. We're driving down the street, the fire engine, check engine light comes on. Even fire engines get check engine lights, right? Um, check engine light, come on. I told the engineer, I go, hey, we need to take it to the city shop, have them look at it. We go to the city shop, they go, we can't fix it. You need to take it to a private mechanic. So we go to a place called Performance Repair up in Irwindale. The owner comes out, a man by the name of Dave Kalaki. Dave comes out and says, yeah, we're going to need your rig. I'll take you, I'll drive you back to your fire station, drop you guys off, you can get into a different reserve rig, and we'll take your rig, we'll work on it. But uh, after I'm done working on your rig, i got to go over to Jay Leno's place. And I go, Jay Leno's place, what do, you, what do you got going on there? And he goes, well, besides working here at Performance, I'm also the caretaker for all Jay Leno's automobiles. And I go, really? <laughs> and I go, and then he goes, what are you doing this Saturday? I saw where he was going with this. I said, I don't know, but nothing now. And I said, uh, <laughs> and I said uh, yeah, nothing. And he goes, what's your crew doing? And I go, nothing. So he invited us up to see. <laughs> he invites us up to see, and there's, there's us in Jay Leno's garage, and you see those classic cars on the right. This is about 150th of, the, of his warehouse right here, 150th. So that's what it looked like. Not only are those cars worth a ton of money, all those wall hangings, those are all originals. None of those are copies. So those are worth millions of dollars just in and of themselves. So that's pretty amazing. But not only did we get to see the garage, we actually got to get a personal tour from Jay himself. I think we have that picture there, no? There we are with Jay. And... Uh, Jay Leno gave us a tour. Like I said, it's two warehouses. He gave us a tour of one of the warehouses himself, walked us through the whole thing. But uh, we, he became very friendly with him. He just became like another one of the guys, and we're talking like I'm talking to you guys right now. No big deal. Really, really cool. Just hanging with Jay Leno on a Saturday. So um, <laughs> it was cool. Um, but can you imagine if I would have just shown up on my own at Jay Leno's garage? They've got a big gate, obviously, between the, the outside street and, and, and the garage itself. Like I said, it's under some serious lock and key because of the value of the vehicles. But, uh, and Jay Leno will just say, by chance, happens to walk out, and he goes, who are you? He goes, hey, man, I'm Scott Gilmore. I'm here to see your garage. What do you think my chances of getting in the garage would have been? He'd be like, I don't know you. Depart from me, you worker of iniquity. I don't know you. <laughs> you know what I mean? No, the only way I was admitted into the garage was because of my relationship with Dave Kalaki the middleman or the mediator because of my relationship with Dave is why Jay Leno let me in his garage. 
In the same way, you're never going to get into heaven on your own merit. That's not going to happen. Paul said this in 1 Timothy 2.5. I'll just read it to you. For there is one God, there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. My question is, are you humble enough to admit it that you're never going to make it to heaven on your own? Unlike the Pharisee we talked about earlier, or do you lay out your resume like he did and say, I will make it on my own. I do a lot of great things for God. I'm a good person. Jesus said this, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. So which is it? But at this point, you might still be thinking, okay, Scott, I get it. I get it. I get what you're saying. I need to get in the proverbial wheelbarrow, start trusting in and not just trusting about. I need a mediator. Get it. But I'm going to throw a flag on the place, God. I'm throwing a flag on the play right now. There has to be some role that I play in my own salvation. I just can't believe it's all of God and none of me. I'm a good person. I've got to play a role in this. Well, if you're thinking that, check this verse out. I'll put it up here on the screen. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5 says this, but God being rich in mercy... Because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were what? Dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. The third way we can demonstrate a humble faith is by realizing we're utterly helpless prior to our conversion because we are dead. Like I said, I've been at, 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 at the, in the fire service for going on 28 years now. I've seen hundreds and hundreds of dead people. By the grace of God, there's been a few that we've been able to bring back from the dead. We've been able to resuscitate them, to revive them. And not one of them ever has felt like they played any role in their own resuscitation. In fact, they show up at the station usually a few days or a few weeks later with a gift basket and said, hey, I want to thank you guys. Without you, I would have been dead. I was dead. Not doing that to pat ourselves on the back. That happens to every hospital in the country, every fire department in the country. But the point being, they don't take credit. They give credit where credit's due. I had no part of this. I was dead. You guys did everything. In the same way, we're dead in our trespasses and sins, but you've been made alive together with Christ. By grace, you've been saved. So I'll put it this way. Number two on our outline, we need to demonstrate childlike faith. Demonstrate childlike faith. Have that same humility to realize that. Demonstrate childlike faith. There's people in here I know that have demonstrated childlike faith. I know that because I know you. You've gone from believing about Jesus to believing in Jesus. You've gotten in the wheelbarrow. I know there's people that realize they're never going to make it to heaven on their own merit, so they've embraced the only mediator that God's provided, which is Christ. I know that about you. I know they've acknowledged their inability to save themselves because they were spiritually dead. My question is, what about you tonight? Are you still trying to convince yourself that there must be some other way to make it to heaven? And you're not willing to humble yourself like a child. Well, like you, this week, I woke up on Monday morning to the news coming out of Las Vegas. Tragic. Unbelievable. Like nothing I've ever heard in my lifetime. But throughout the week, through this, throughout this week, I've been reading the stories about the victims. All different ages, all different creeds, races, all walks of life. There's men, there's women. Big variation. I even read about one girl from right here in Southern California who was engaged to be married. And I couldn't help but start thinking about all the ramifications of that. So presumably the invitations had already gone out. 
They've already secured the venue for the reception. The wedding photographer, the DJ, the caterer, the cake, those things have all been ordered. But now, instead of planning a wedding, her family's planning her funeral. It, it just reminded me of the brevity and the uncertainty of life. They're at a concert. What are the chances? James says it this way. He says, our lives are just a vapor. They appear for a moment and they're gone. All that matters for that girl now and those other people that were there, was she right with God? Did she have the kind of childlike faith that Jesus requires to get into his kingdom? I hope she did. I know this. I know 2 Peter 3.9 says that God's not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. I hope she did before she died. I know hopefully tonight, if this describes you and you haven't come to faith in Christ yet, that I hope you've been hearing God speak to you about your need to humble yourself and, as Pastor Mike said, to helplessly embrace salvation. I hope you've been hearing his voice. And speaking of hearing his voice, I've just got another last verse. We'll close with this. Hebrews 3, 7 through 12. Put that up here on the screen. It says this. Therefore, see if you find yourself in this, please. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, today, today, tonight, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the rebellion. It's back in the Old Testament. You can read that later on your own. On the day, on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and they saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation. I said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. Does that describe you tonight? And God says, as I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. They're not getting in. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. And if you're thinking, Scott, now you've resorted to scare tactics, maybe I have. Maybe that is a scare tactic. Maybe you should be scared. But if you are scared, realize this. The only reason that God's allowing you to be scared is because he loves you. Again, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Humble yourself before him tonight like a child. He loves you. Amen? Let's pray. God, thank you so much uh, again for these just three short little verses, but just so rich in truth, God. And I just pray that for us that are believers, God, and, and that have children, God, that we would uh, pray these prayers for our children, that we know that you that are in, a lot, in accordance with your will, God, that they would be saved, that they would be sanctified, that they would be ambassadors for you. God, and I know we need prayer as parents to, to properly raise them up, to, uh, like Ephesians 6 talks about, like Deuteronomy 6 talks about, God. We talk about you when we rise up, when we lie down, when we walk along the way. Bring them up in the training and the instruction of the Lord. Help us to do that as parents. And then as we shifted to the second half of this message, God, we pray for those here that don't know you, God. They've never really trusted in you, God. They're not willing to go all the way with you across Niagara Falls, God. Help, it to, help them to realize it's a trust issue, God, and that you're trustworthy. And you've proven yourself time and time again that you are. Help them to realize they can't make it on their own, God. They need a mediator. And God, you've provided a mediator in sending your son for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life, God. And then finally, help us to realize, all of us to realize that we have played no role in our own salvation, God, and we play no role in it. We're dead in our trespasses and sins, God, and it takes you to make us alive. Help us all to realize that tonight, God. For those that need salvation, I pray that you'd save them this day. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Enjoy your time.